Welcome back to Technopolis, where technology is disrupting, remaking, and sometimes overrunning our cities. I'm Jim Capsis. I was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, and now I advise climate tech startups. And I'm Molly Turner. I teach urban tech at the Berkeley Haas School of Business, and I was the first policy director at Airbnb. So Jim and I are emerging from our COVID hibernation, and uh, we've got a couple fun new episodes to tide you over until our next full season airs. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be releasing a few episodes that we've made in collaboration with some of our other podcaster friends that we think you'd like. And today's episode is with our friend Shell Khan of the Interchange podcast. The Interchange, if you don't know it, is a podcast that goes really deep into the tech and money trends that are reshaping the energy system. So with wildfire and hurricane season just around the corner again, we'll be talking with him about how we might make our cities more climate resilient, whether any new technologies might help, and what the Biden administration's big climate push could mean for cities in harm's way. It was a pretty fun episode to record and a fun conversation to have, adding a new person to the mix. And of course, particularly fun for Jim, since climate tech happens to be his favorite topic, <laughs> second only Come to on. Greece, which of course made an appearance during this conversation. I, I did like how I weaved that in, so the folks will just have to wait for it. <laughs> well, what did you think were the big takeaways that uh, you know from the discussion? What was most interesting to you, Molly? You know, I, I have to admit, I don't spend all my waking hours thinking about climate change the you way should. you do and Shale does. And it's so effing hard. <laughs> I mean, this, there are no easy answers to any of these challenges. But uh, I appreciated that we talked about some actually pretty pragmatic solutions that um, that gave me a little optimism. Yeah, it seemed like it's a big problem like every other collective action problem that we've got to face. There's a role for tech. Tech can't solve everything. There's a role for government. And it's really hard to get people to do things to prepare for the future. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of preparation, folks, come prepare for hurricane and fire season with us and uh, take a listen to the episode. Molly and Jim, hello. Hi. Hey, Shell. Great to be here with you guys. And I'm honored to be your first Technopolis recording of your new season. You guys said that you, the last episode that you recorded was last September. It was in the middle. Right? It was, yeah, it was our little COVID season. Feels like a decade ago. <laughs> it does. COVID, COVID years, COVID months are like yeah. years, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I imagine that for you guys who are covering the intersection of technology and cities, uh, the period between September 2020 and May 2021 is like centuries, centuries worth of activity. Yeah, a few things have happened. A few things have happened, <laughs> and there's certainly been a lot of talk about what's happening or not happening in cities. Right, right. Well, I think we want to have some of that talk, um, but particularly we want to take a lens to what it means to build resilience within cities, the the growing ways in which unfortunately is becoming clear that we need more resilience within cities and how to how to enable that. But first, because you two are my city gurus, my urban gurus, uh, I do want to just get like your high level take. What is, you know, one of the areas that has received the most attention as like potentially being transformed fundamentally as a result of COVID is cities and urbanism. So uh, from where you sit today in May of 2021, whatever, 15 months or so into this pandemic, like what do you think is the state 
of cities today? Maybe Molly, you can go first. Oh, that's a good question. Well, I should preface it by saying I live right smack dab in the middle of San Francisco. And when I talk to folks, friends and others outside San Francisco, they all say, what's San Francisco like these days? It must just be totally desolate. I'm like, no, my neighborhood is thriving. There's so many people out and about using the public spaces. All of the businesses now have these outdoor presences. Downtown San Francisco is really suffering, but a lot of the neighborhoods are actually doing okay. And, you know, over the past year or so, I've been asked, I think, you know, every reporter wants to talk about the future of cities and the future demise of cities after COVID. So I've been doing a lot of interviews on that topic. And I tell everyone the same thing, which is I think the demise of cities is overblown. It's always it's always been overblown. In fact, people have talked about the demise of cities for all kinds of reasons for decades, centuries. And they're usually wrong. You know, cities historically have recovered really well from pandemics. A lot of people are worried about, you know, what's remote work going to do to cities or telecommuting, we used to call it, right? It didn't, it did not kill cities yet. In fact, the world urbanized at an even faster rate as remote work opportunities emerge. And it certainly helps that, you know, the Biden administration has begun to increase aid to transit agencies, providing funding for homeless housing. So uh, city governments aren't going to be as much in a, a fiscal hole as we worried they might be. So my prediction, I think cities are going to recover and be vibrant again. It might take a few years and I think which cities are able to recover the fastest will depend a lot on their tax structure and which depend the most on sales tax, which has been taking a huge hit this past year. And we're going to definitely have to rethink land use in some of our downtowns where we might not see as many people coming back to the office as before. Yeah, she'll, you'll, you'll, you'll hear one thing. Molly and I don't always agree on on, on this, which yeah, is so. she, she's, she's the eternal sort of like city optimist. And I think particularly when it comes to, let's say, like the bigger cities like San Francisco, uh, which she's very proud to live in. And I think you, you're there as well. Uh, you know, I think the map of cities looks a lot different right today, and we'll and and, and those changes, I think, are going to be with us, right? So if you look at people have fled a lot of the bigger right cities. I mean, people have fled downtown San Francisco. They have fled New York. Uh, Temporarily. Well, I, I'm not sure how temporary that is. I don't think. I mean, I I know anecdotally, uh, my wife and I have at least 20 individual friends who lived in New York that have permanently left and are not coming back. I mean, that's anecdotal, but I, I do think that there people are, are realizing that there are other places to go live, but it's it's good for other cities. So let's just be clear. I think where I, Molly and I agree, cities will continue to thrive. And what we've seen is there are different kinds of cities that are emerging as great places to live that people didn't even realize before which are like the smaller, medium-sized cities that pe are the ones that people are are going to, right? It's yeah, Boise, Idaho, and Austin, you know? It's, right. That's where they're it's going. It's been a boon. There's no question that COVID has been a boon for second-tier cities, and particularly second-tier cities that are desirable for one reason or another, or they're beautiful natural beauty or whatever. I mean, there, there's no question about that. I think the bigger, the discourse, the, the discourse where there's some debate is around 
the big cities that were very expensive, where the cost of living was very high, San Francisco and New York are the ones we're talking about here, which everybody was, you know, historically pre-COVID, the rhetoric was basically like, these places are impossible to afford, and yet, you know, a ton of people still move to them because it's where the opportunity is and there's all this culture and that kind of stuff. And so the question is whether that comes back. The pressure, there, we might have a little bit of a reprieve. The pressure might have been taken off from these really um, popular cities. But at the same time, while, you know, San Francisco's population declined temporarily or maybe even a little bit permanently, we housing production in in the bay area and in california has tanked during the past year and was already on a downward trend for the past couple of years so it's not going to solve our housing crisis just cuz all these people are now moving to boise and austin and miami that's not going to solve our housing crisis we still need to build more housing cuz there's still people who all of my students by the way i teach undergrad seniors right now at cal Every single one of them I've talked to is planning to move to San Francisco and is looking for apartments this summer. Like people are going to be moving back here and we need to have enough housing for them. All right. Well, we could talk about the general state of cities probably for, I'm sure you two <laughs> could talk about it for weeks. We could. We could just yeah. keep going. But I do want to turn to resilience and what that's going to mean within cities. And particularly, I mean, there's obviously resilience is a broad topic and there's resilience to many things, including pandemics, obviously. Um, but of most immediate interest to me, uh, spending most of my time on the intersection of climate and technology, is resilience to uh, extreme weather and natural disaster. So Mo Molly, you and I have experienced this pretty directly the past couple of years, both living in the Bay Area and experiencing the, the wildfires that we've been seeing increasingly over the past couple of years. It, it looks, as of today, like 2021 may in fact be even worse than the past couple of years, it's like already May, and we're. It's in, hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> it's just we're in really bad wildfire conditions, unfortunately. Yeah, it's really it's dry, right? You guys are in a drought, and so the prediction is that this is going to be another bad bad year. And last year was the worst year. Yeah, I mean, we just keep uh, breaking record. records every year. Right, right. But you can you contextualize it though? I mean, I think for it's interesting. I think the wildfire stuff in Northern California, if you're living in the Bay Area, it's like so central to your life at this point. And you th you think of it as being, this is like the biggest thing that's happening in the world, but obviously people who are not here don't experience it the same way, just as hurricanes in the Southeast or whatever. Like what in, in, in rational objective scale, how big a deal are these wildfires? I mean, it's huge. And one of the things that's been striking about the wildfires is the communities that they've affected, right? I think we always understood that these communities at um, at the urban fringe, you, you know, were at more risk. Um, but all of a sudden, a city like Santa Rosa that we never really thought of as at huge risk to wildfires, you know, a huge swath of the city burns down a couple years ago. And the wildfire risk maps that insurance companies have just didn't even really think about that possibility in a city like Santa Rosa. And so that has, in California, as you know, Shale, you know, just been a huge economic cost to the state. I mean, it has put a couple insurance companies out of business. The state has recently told insurance companies that they basically are required to cover um, some of these really high-risk areas um, for the next year. And in the meantime, the state is spending 
hundreds of millions, if not billions more every year um, to address this risk. I think um, in in um, the past year, it was an estimated $3.3 billion of state spending to address wildfires. And we just don't have the financial resources to cover this. And um, and that's not even talking about adaptation. That's just mitigation. Right. So this is one of these areas where, I, you know, I've learned a fair bit about it, both because I'm living in Northern California and because like I work in the energy and utilities sector. And it obviously here especially overlaps with that. But it's one of these things that like at the at the high level, you think, look, can't we just throw enough resources and fix this, not necessarily avoid every wildfire start, but shouldn't there be a suite of technologies ranging from wildfire and weather prediction to mitigation to extinguishing? Like, shouldn't we be able to avoid these big widespread wildfires? And indeed, the sense that I've got, and Jim, I know you're close to this as well, is that there are there is a bevy of technologies that are being proposed as, you know, partial solutions to the wildfire problem, all of which you could put under the bucket of resilience tech. Um, what is your sense of, you know, which of these technologies have promise and the degree to which it's just a matter of implementing all of them or whether it's we actually just don't have the solutions at this point? Yeah, listen, tech tech is going to play a role, there's no doubt. Um, although the challenge is much bigger than any single technology can help, you know, can, can solve. And I think Molly can talk a bit about land use, which I think is an enormous part of the problem. So that technology, the technology cannot solve. But let's talk about tech for a sec. So first of all, in terms of the billions of dollars being spent, Shell, you and I are both pretty close to the utility sector, right? The, the three big utilities in California are going to spend $11 billion just on wildfire mitigation efforts just in the next year, uh, and which is a heck of a lot more than they were spending just a, right just a few years ago. I think the challenge with technology, uh, as with just addressing this problem in general, is that to whom does the technology sell itself, right? Where the wildfire does not adhere to boundaries. It's why it's called wild. And so... If you sell to utility and you have a tech, you have a sensor, right? Uh, uh, kind of situation, a sensor technology, or you have, uh, you know, satellite technology, whatever it might be, that's serving a utility. That's great. But what about Cal Fire? What about the Forest Service? What about the county, the municipal entity that actually has the first responders, right? That are going to go out and address the fire. So I think that's one big challenge for technology and companies that are in the space of which we work with, which is. How do we not only sell a solution to one entity, but potentially to multiple in a way that they can share right across these different boundary lines? So we think about the different categories, right? There is there's detection of fires, right? We work with a company called Pano, which is you know, cameras go in the field with AI and machine learning that help fire services or utilities actually identify fires right when they right when they start. But then you have to have technologies that also help to map where fires might likely happen, right? And that's like companies like TechnoSilva that are doing predictive modeling, right? Jupiter Intelligence, you know, companies in that space. And then you've got your satellite technologies, which increasingly are important to look at, like, again, from the utility space, where is their uh, overgrowth, right? Where there might be an issue where the lines right, might get hit with uh, you know, 
trees that are overgrown and then just spark and then you have a, a major wildfire. So there are technologies that are out there and there are a lot of companies that are getting into the space, but there is this challenge of kind of how do you deal with it across these different entities. I'll add a couple categories to that too. I mean, all those are true. There's also wildfire spread prediction. Once a wildfire starts, it's actually a pretty complicated data science challenge to combine the nature of the wildfire with the nature of the growth with the weather and the wind, prevailing wind conditions, and what it might be to predict where the wildfire is going to spread to so you can have more effective response. There's also... Um, in the actual extinguishing world, there's like new solvents you can use to try to extinguish wildfires better. There's autonomous drones that you can use to be your wildfire fighters in the in the air. Like there's, you know, a ton of stuff um, in the actual mitigation universe once the wildfire starts as well. But your point is well taken. First of all, none of these things are individually a complete solution. But second of all, there's no single customer for any of them. That's I think it's exactly right. And I actually, to me, the analogy that I think of is I started my career on Capitol Hill right after 9-11. And after 9-11 happened and the 9-11 commission came out with a report, the focus was, or one of the big areas that was identified is that like these different entities of government, different levels and first responders, they can't really talk to each other. like, And they don't know how to act collectively to address terrorist threats. I actually think wildfire is sort of a terrorist threat from the climate. And we need that same sort of kind of cross-functional uh, you know, collaboration and coordination across entities at the governmental level, as well as the appropriate technology that interoperates to actually have a chance at addressing yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree that it is really a collective action and governance challenge more than it is a technology challenge. I think there are some really exciting technologies that can certainly help with all of the things that you both just said. But as the urban planner on the podcast, I'm thinking about there are just some places where people should not be living. And that is a point that's easier said than dealt with, right? Some of these communities are just too at risk of whether it's wildfire or flooding or whatever it might be. And how do we keep them safe? How do we move them? I mean, we saw in New Orleans with the infamous green dot plan where they went around and stuck green dots on a map that said these neighborhoods and these communities have to move. They're no longer safe, right? There was a huge uproar in response to that, which is not surprising. These tended to be lower income black communities that historically had no other neighborhood option available to them because of exclusionary and racist zoning policies. And so what do we what do we do um, particularly when it's lower income communities that tend to be disproportionately affected by these uh, climate change risks. I mean, some people I'm talking to, um, my friend Catherine Bracey, who's who's really um, influential in housing policy in the state of California, is saying, you know, the insurance companies are starting to actually force these decisions that politically we don't have the will to force because the insurance companies are saying we can't cover these neighborhoods anymore. But that's a really, pardon my French, shitty solution to this, right? Because that really negatively affects a lot of communities that are already vulnerable. So, you know, are there other ways that we can 
do land use planning and develop our future communities to take this into account. For example, like the um, state AG in California right now is getting involved in a CEQA, California Environmental Quality Lawsuit, to prevent new housing from getting built in a wildfire prone area. We need to do more of that, right? There's some low hanging fruits to say, there are certain areas where we should not be developing more, and maybe some certain areas that are very low density with not high intensity uses, where that could be easily transitioned, you know, like an airport in a rural area that maybe we transition to a higher density area. And then at the same time, I think the real solution to this, we need to build more housing and commercial office yes. space in higher density infill areas, the safer areas that are not at risk of sea level rise and wildfires, right? But those areas tend to be higher income, whiter, and more resistant to change. And so at the end of the day, I think the real problem here is is not a technology problem. I think it's a land use problem. Let's not be too California centric here, though. I'm prone to that. <laughs> Fair. I'm accused of yeah, that. Yeah, you often. Californians. Let's get. We got yeah. to move east. We got to move. The east. world does revolve around us, but let's pretend that it doesn't. Um, so let's let's talk about. I mean, it's obviously not just wildfires that that uh, are part of the urban resilience that is required, or that cause the urban resilience that is required. We've got a whole host of other natural disasters, generally uh, related to either water or wind. I would say that cause problems in the rest of the country. Particularly, I think we should talk about things like hurricanes and flooding, um, which seem to me to be the most immediate and also the ones where we, you know, most clearly see the effects of climate change causing an increase in frequency and magnitude of these things. Um, Jim, from your perspective, you know, maybe compare sort of how we think about wildfire type resilience than what we need to do in places like California and in the West to hurricane and or flood resilience that we need in the middle or Eastern part of the country. Yeah, no, I think the challenges are obviously enormous. And you just go back to, you know, you think about Katrina when it hit New Orleans and, and as like sort of that seminal moment where I would say maybe everyone woke up or more so to extreme weather events and what those could mean uh, on a human right level. Uh, and so increasingly, Across cities, I mean, across the East Coast, Southeast, many other parts of the country, I mean, the, the power outages due to extreme weather, we just saw in Texas, a very unusual one, right, with, with this sort of winter freeze, and what that has meant for just day-to-day -day life and economic activity, right, where where the extreme weather event, um, you know, just causes, you know, things to go to a total, you know, standstill. And so I think from a, you know, from a technology and, and like, and let's say city perspective, I think there are a couple of things to think about, right? So one is um, how do we how do we start making investments in our cities for the inevitable, right? Like we're gonna have more of this. Like I don't care what how good the Biden administration is on mitigation of climate. Like a lot of this is just gonna happen and we gotta prepare for it. And so when I, I've been talking to a number of folks uh, in various states and cities, and and to the sort of vulnerable populations, right, which are you know the ones that will have the hardest time dealing with these outages and other disruptions. There's a lot of effort going into investments in microgrids at community centers, right, um, in lower income areas, so that when the when there is a hurricane, when there is an outage of some sort that's that has it's multiple days, people have a place to go. 
and they can actually get access to food and medicine and basic services, which if they were staying in their home, um, they'd be in, in trouble. So there's, I think there's a, a big movement towards, you know, at the city level of planning for those events and thinking about how to get batteries, uh, you know, and other types of technologies into strategic locations in cities to protect the most vulnerable parts of the population. What are you seeing, Shell? I mean, you're you're deep in this space. Like, what's uh, what's on what's you know what's been interesting from what you've been seeing on the technology or on the utility side? Because the utilities, of course, across the board, this is their new normal. For sure. I mean, I do think that there's been more. There's certainly been more investment in grid hardening, right? From the utility perspective, you've seen this to great success actually in places like Florida, where the actual the the you know amount of outages that we see from an equivalent type of a storm it has gone down and the mean response time and time to turning the power back on when the power does go out has gotten better so we i do think that utilities generally have learned um particularly around hurricanes and and that kind of extreme weather around how to harden the grid i agree with you that i think you know we see a fair amount of activity around microgrids though i would say you know, you see the most of that stuff, both microgrids and backup generation um, being procured by and cited at private facilities, be that a grocery store in Texas or be that a, you know, a rich home in uh, in Dallas or whatever it is, right? Like it's people individually who can afford a power wall um, or it's, it's private businesses. We see less of it at the community level, this sort of idea of community level microgrids that I think has been popular to talk about. You just don't see that much deployment of it yet. That's interesting. I think, I think it's going to change. I hope I'm hopeful that's going to change just based on some of the conversations I've been having with energy managers in cities. I hope that's true. I mean, it certainly should be right. I think that, I think if you're in an area that is prone to natural disaster, which is nearly everywhere in one way or another, you should, everyone should have a list of critical facilities, um, whether they are private or whether they are, you know, owned by the state and those facilities should be protected somehow. Um, but I bet you, if you made that list right now, I mean, certainly there's backup generation at things like hospitals, but, uh, you know, it's not going to be, it's not going to be as ubiquitous as you'd like it to be. Yeah, I agreed. I, let's talk about flooding for a minute because, I think flooding isn't just hurricanes, right? It, it is just the the high intensity rain that we're seeing more and more of in a large part of the country where I live, right outside DC. I mean, the, the the rain has fundamentally changed in the last four or five years in terms of how much we're getting. I was talking to a city official earlier this week, and he, and he was saying we get as much rain in twenty minutes as we used to get in an hour, and that's just a change in in a few years. And it has profound consequences at very locally for people, right, in their homes where their basements flood, where storm sewers overflow because they get backed up because they were not built, you know, to accommodate this type of intense uh, rainwater. And it's presented this amazing challenge, both operationally and politically, for city leaders to try to figure out what to do about it. Because like with so many other collective action problems and climate change is like the most, is the like the ultimate right case study, the public typically does not want politicians to invest their tax dollars in preventive medicine. 
right? They, they don't want you to invest their dollars in the thing that you believe as the city official is going to maybe happen in a few years because they're like, well, why are you investing in that when we need to fix this problem right now that we touch, taste, feel today? And that what's happening in communities right now, it's happening in my community, is that the city officials are getting beat up because they tried to make investments in the past in infrastructure and they got pushed back on by the community because folks wanted to make more investments in schools, which is great, right? Or other areas. And so we're, we're playing catch up. And I think what's going to happen in the next couple of years is that there's going to be more and more acute pain felt like you guys felt in California last year with the wildfires. We're going to have more people and more communities that are going to feel that pain. And it's going to require cities and states to take action, the federal government, and technology is going to have to also be part of that solution set. What I find frustrating about how this how this all plays out every time it happens, it feels to me, tell me if you guys feel differently, every time there's some major event, some natural disaster, be it a wildfire in California, be it the freeze in Texas earlier this year, hurricane, whatever it might be, it sparks a conversation about resilience, you know, immediately afterwards, um, that sometimes leads to some bit of action, depends on the magnitude of the thing, right? Katrina definitely led to a bunch of action. Sandy led to a bunch of action. California wildfires, maybe. Um, but generally speaking, it sort of subsides to a degree until the next season when the next thing happens. And it takes like a few, California is now in a different situation where it's annual. And so we've, you know, we are seeing a cadence of every 12 months, perhaps less than 12 months this season, we're going to have a bunch of you know, a couple of weeks where the air is unbreathable and people are having to evacuate their homes and so on. And is it going to take that level of frequency to spark really substantial action, whether it be from governments or land use planning or technology or whatever it might be? Um, or is there a way to foster the culture of resilience before the event happens in the first place? Can we take an area that has not yet been flooded, but is at high flood risk and convince them to do something today? So I was actually just talking to my friend uh, Dana Breckwald is a, a resilience planner for the um, Bay Conservation and Development Commission, the agency, the government agency that basically manages the Bay. And she was talking about exactly this. You know, they're trying to plan for sea level rise. And this small suburban town in Marin, Corte Madera, did a sea level rise vulnerability assessment. And they're like, okay, there are certain neighborhoods that are going to flood. And they didn't say what they were going to do about it. They just told the residents of this town, hey, this is what's going to happen. And the residents absolutely freaked out. They're like, I can't believe you're telling us this. This is going to ruin our property values. What do we do? And there was just so much resistance to even talking about what might happen in the future and planning for that. And I think the big challenge there is figuring out how to communicate these risks with the residents and how to engage with them in a way that doesn't freak them out, right? How to walk them through the different options and say, like, here's all the different solutions. Which solution feels like it would work best for your community and to really bring them into this? Because otherwise, I think people just freak out and say, you know, in this country, our Wealth generation happens through property ownership. And if you all of a sudden go into a neighborhood and tell people all of the wealth that you have worked so hard to build over the past years or decades is going to be go to zero, like that's not 
a useful way to start a conversation. And so I think we have to find better ways to have that conversation in different communities in ways that will resonate with those communities and what their you know, lived experiences are. I think we're also going to need some sticks, though, and some big sticks, really, to get action to occur. And I, and I think so of what a, are they? Well, I'll, I'll throw out a few, right? So one, I think, is the sh- insurance companies are getting serious, right? They're about pushing back and uh, and threatening to leave different jurisdictions. I that's think a, just to be clear, yeah. that's a stick in the sense that, and we're seeing, we've seen this in in Northern California specifically, a home that was insurable five years ago is either no longer insurable from an insurance company perspective or your insurance rate has shot through the roof 10x what it was before. And you're saying that creates the stick for, in this case, the homeowner who can't get insurance or the new homeowner who maybe won't buy the house. And to the city too, to be like, wait a second, if certain parts of our community are beginning to not be insurable uh, or the insurance companies are telling us that based on their analysis, this is where things are going, right? FEMA right now is doing a total reassessment of their flood mapping all across the country. They, they haven't done it in almost 10 years. Uh, I think once they redo that, it's going to fundamentally change kind of flood insurance, right, in large, large portions of the country once that data is available and it informs the insurance agencies. The other, in the other category are the, if you think about cities, it's the ratings agencies, right? Because the lifeblood of cities is municipal financing. And and I'll I'll here's a, an interesting story. I was talking to a friend of mine, Adam Freed, who is at Bloomberg Associates, the sort of philanthropic consulting arm of the Bloomberg like city empire, and uh, he pointed me to a Moody's report from a few years ago from Europe. And Moody's did a climate risk assessment of all these cities in Europe. And Molly find this funny because of my Greek origin, but like <laughs> the city that's like the most vulnerable, right, for climate in a whole bunch of areas, it's Athens. Right, the first city, right, arguably <laughs> uh, of the Western world, and it's because of the extreme heat in particular. So it's at risk of wildfires, and it's also at risk of just being uninhabitable. And so the Greek economy and the Athenian economy is so based on tourism that Moody's was basically like, if you don't figure out how to address this like heat problem in your city, we're going to downgrade you because you're not going to be able to be economically sustainable. And so the Bloomberg team went into Athens and worked with the last mayor to figure out how do we actually get a tree planting effort at scale in the city? How do we end up, how do we change the color of like buildings and facades to create, to lower the temperature? Because if you've ever been, by the way, to a city like Athens, which I love, but you know, those fifties, that post-war architecture, it's like a concrete jungle with not a lot of green around. And so it means that the temperature is even that much higher. In any event, so I think ratings agencies and insurance companies informed by government action, like what the Biden administration and other governments are trying to do, is is going to begin moving the needle. But it's, it's still going to be hard at the local level to get people to just accept the investments that are required. Yeah. And there's going to be so much financial hardship, right? Like, I, I think you're right, Jim, that the stick is going to come from... you know, the insurance companies come from the economic pressure, but then that creates so much financial hardship for these communities when all of a sudden you say, oh, you've got to pay, you know, 200, 300% more to be insured. Um, And like I said before, the value of your home, um, your entire wealth is going to go to zero. So like, I really hope there's 
a non-economic stick that we can use. I don't know what it is, but I think it'd be a real shame if it had to come down to um, the insurance companies leading the charge on this. Because I think it would cause a lot of pain for people. In some ways, this kind of reminds me of the what to do about coal communities discussion, which is basically like, look, we recognize from a macro perspective, we need to decarbonize electricity. And there's basically no way we're going to decarbonize electricity while continuing to operate all these coal plants or building any new coal plants. So like, we, we probably need to shut them down. On the other hand, there's a very real economic toll to very real people who and communities who are reliant on these um, this infrastructure that's been built up for decades and that they were promised would continue to operate. So you have to solve simultaneously for the macro problem of decarbonizing electricity and the micro problem of helping these communities. In this context, it is it does seem clear to me that one of the big macro solutions here is embedding good climate risk analytics into yes. the financial system in a bunch of different ways, right? Insurance is one, it's gonna have to get baked into housing prices, it's gonna have to get baked into financial markets. Th this is gonna have to happen. But in so doing, we are going to expose a bunch of risks that otherwise are not being priced in. And that is gonna you know, bubble down to individual people and communities who find themselves at risk of something they didn't know about and probably weren't responsible for figuring out when they moved to this community. So it's a really, there's this divide between what has to happen from a societal level and then how do you actually deal with the impacts of that down at the community level. So Sheil, the way you just talked about that to me is a perfect lead into the role, frankly, that I think the federal government and maybe the state government does need to play here, which is to make it easier, right, for localities to make investments in protecting the future of their uh, of their community, because the locals are going to have a harder time investing. Frankly, the local dollars, I think, that are arguably scarcer. They don't have uh, enough. They don't have enough, right, to make those types of investments. And so that's where, like, the federal government is, which is supposed to be thinking a, a bit on the longer term and strategically, right, I think should be providing those types of resources. And I think there's some evidence that the Biden administration is is try, is going to try to do that. It's super, it's early days, but there has been a redirection, for example, of FEMA dollars that I think in the order of multiple billions going to the sort of BRIC program, which is basically a grant program to states to then turn over to use, to be accessible to counties and cities for a whole range of resilience-oriented investments. But there's got to be more, and 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 if I were sort of on the you know and the part of the Biden team right now, with frankly fire and hurricane season upon us, I would make a pretty bold pronouncement, right, and say like, here's what we're gonna do, right? We're gonna create this like wildfire resiliency fund and a hurricane resiliency fund, and like label it that way, and make sure that that the localities know how to access it and can actually make forward looking right investments today and the government has also what i'm told a lot of assets at its, at its disposal that it's not using so supposedly the jet propulsion lab at nasa okay and i have to, i need to corroborate this but has amazing amounts of heat data for like hundreds of cities if not more in the us and they're just kind of waiting for someone to ask them for it 
I'm like, don't wait for them to ask for it. Fig, find it, make it, make it available, right, to the to, to to municipalities so they can use that for for planning purposes. So it's planning purposes. So there's there is money that they can be made available, but there's also like, frankly, there's intelligence, right, that the government has about local communities that is not getting to the local communities as fast as it should to help with planning. All right. So to wrap up this conversation that otherwise could have gone on for hours or days or weeks. Um, what are you going to be looking out for? I guess from a either a policy or a technology perspective, like what are the things you'd like to see more of over the next year or two as it pertains to urban resilience? What do we need to be doing in the near term um, that can, you know, start to put us on the right path so that we don't have such utter calamity in our urban environments moving forward? Molly, Name name a thing at least. Well, I'll keep pounding this. Ba- I'll keep banging this drum. I think land use is the key to all of this, right? We need to allow denser development in safer areas and disincentivize or disallow new development in unsafe areas. And, you know, that comes down to eliminating exclusionary and racist zoning policies, uh, finding ways to lower the cost of housing construction in really dense areas, and you know, reforming tax codes to incentivize um, certain types of housing construction in different areas. So, I think land use is is uh, is the most uh, pressing and promising uh, solution right now. I'll give you. Two quick ones. So we just talked to the Biden administration. I want to see a bigger coordinated effort from the Biden administration on resilience. I think they've done a great job out of the gate, particularly on mitigation. And I want to. I, I think that that's a place for leadership. And now, given the season we're entering, and then in the world, you know, Shale, that you and I spent a lot of time in climate tech. I want to see the investment community. I mean, we. This is like this amazing period of climate tech investing. I would say you're more on the uh, into the details on this. Uh, that most of that is really on mitigation technology. There's some that's on resilience, and I, again, we've talked about some companies that are in this space. But I want to see a push from the climate VC community, right, uh, and the private equity community into resilience technologies across the board, because we also need those kinds of companies to emerge and for entrepreneurs to know that that problem is there and there's money coming at them to help them solve that those those problems which are here with us right now. What about you? I totally agree with that. Yeah, no, I mean that that's sort of similar to what I was going to say. I I do think that there are a few areas, little pockets within the world of climate resilience that have gained the attention of entrepreneurs and investors. I mean, you've seen in the climate risk uh, analytics space, you you're starting to see a little bit in this kind of like wildfire mitigation or wildfire response space. Um, little baskets of companies, certainly in the sort of backup generation microgrids kind of world that's been around for a while. With that said, I agree with you. It doesn't rise to the magnitude of the challenge. And we'd like to see a whole lot more there. I think relating it back to the Biden administration, for example, Biden seems to want to create an ARPA for everything. Why not an ARPA R? Totally. Right? Yeah. Like there's enough to be done there. Um, and there's there are whole categories, right? There's different types of technology that are going to be required for wildfire response versus flood versus hurricane. There's different components of the economy that that needs to get baked into. There are these questions around land use and policy and things like that. I I do think that the 
the tech community, and particularly as climate tech has gained all this excitement and steam, I think you're right that the vast majority of the attention and excitement has gone to mitigation. And I think that's probably right. Uh, my heuristic has been personally, you know, you should dedicate, if you want to have a holistic view or a holistic portfolio around climate or climate tech today, you should, you know, you're the high level weighting um, with which you should either invest your time or attention or dollars is maybe like 80% mitigation, 20% resilience. Hmm. And then hopefully over time that Why do you ramps say that? up. Well, because it feels to me like we, you're only, if you don't solve for the first one, mitigation, then your challenge on the second one, resilience, is going to become exponentially harder. So it's really, 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 like we can't, it's so important that we mitigate, that we, you know, strive for net zero greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century or something like that. So important. I would overweight that. And over time... My hope, I guess, is that we set ourselves on a path there that that seems like it's plausible and we're headed in the right direction. And you can start to shift your attention more toward the latter resilience, which unfortunately will probably become more and more apparent as as a need. And and obviously, you know, these tech startups are chasing where the business opportunities are, right? Where they can find customers and make money. And that may not align perfectly or even all that well with where the greatest problems are that need new solutions. So even if, you know, there isn't some magical tech startup to solve our resiliency problems, I think the tech mindset can still be helpful. And there should be more, you know, we talk about this a lot in our podcast, Jim, like the more public private cooperation and collaboration to help, you know, uh, speed up the deployment of new solutions, speed up the feedback loop, think about these problems in new ways. I think the key is just that we have to under, we have to all agree, public and private sector, what is the most pressing problem? Um, but I think the, the, Climate tech industry can certainly help government um, approach these problems, maybe in different new ways that might be helpful. Jim and Molly, thank you so much for doing this. This is a lot of fun. Show's great. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Technopolis. If you enjoyed it, make sure to subscribe to both Technopolis and The Interchange wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to stick with us as we release some more special collab episodes over the next several weeks. And uh, stay tuned for our new season coming soon. And a big thank you to Anjana Agarwal, Brian Coyman, Stephen Lacey, and Daniel Wardorf for their help with the show. 